Welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. It's been a while since I've said that. <laughs> it's been a while since I've said that. It's like the mics are all dusty and covered in cobwebs, you know, tumbleweeds. Yeah, it's been it's been a couple weeks since we've recorded. But hopefully it won't be too long till this thing is posted. I have <laughs> Two other episodes to get to before getting to this one, so who knows when when you're listening to this in the future. <laughs> hopefully some point, hopefully the first person who hears it will hear it at some point in June of 2014. That would be nice. That would be very nice. That's our goal. Um, yeah, so this is our new theme of the month. Uh, <laughs> the month time frame doesn't really apply anymore i guess but we'll try to finish up do four episodes before july that'd be record nice. them yeah. at least yeah that would be nice but we got a lot of movie watching to do yeah because we've get, we've already got two movies to talk about here on this episode so let's just dive right into it we're talking about the beatles which is fitting as uh a couple weeks ago max played a rooftop concert that yeah i guess that is true (laughs) not nearly as notable as the beatles rooftop concert but you know it's impossible not to think about that when you know you're playing on a rooftop it was nice it was a great show Mm. why did you uh think about that whole i guess yeah we we could talk about that i guess i guess yeah when what it was the it was the first oh no what date was it the last it was the last weekend in may it was like May 31st, I believe. It was Saturday. Yeah. In Brooklyn, uh, Jonathan Phelps organized this whole... The Jeffersonian... Jeffersonian art show. And it's part of a uh, a larger thing that goes on in Bushwick called Bushwick Open Studios. Where there's... It's kind of like the art walk in downtown Glens Falls. Where it's basically just like all these different people have all these different art installations and performances and all kinds of things and you know people can just like walk around from from place to place there's some sort of directory that lists all the addresses where the events are happening and john got his on there and um yeah quite he had uh curated a pretty large amount of different art things the most notable was the with the vr helmets that him and steve had created those were the big hit of the of the weekend, I'd say. Yeah, I, I only got to try one of them because I have a big head. Yeah, I but, couldn't get um, my head in the other one. But I, I enjoyed the one I... I don't know how different they were from each other. But. They were pretty cool. There was like these like bike helmets that had goggles attached to them. 
and you put your head on it and the goggles they had iPhones attached to them that were basically augmenting reality as you would look around and uh, it was messing with the audio and stuff it was it was it was it was pretty cool but everyone was really getting a kick out of that a lot of people came by throughout the course of the day I think two of my favorite pieces and this really speaks to my laziness mm-hmm. were the um, the massage table where when you look in the hole there's like this video of just like scrolling scenery I, oh, I didn't get on the massage yeah. table well after a couple hours they put up a sign that said do not sit yeah, which kind of defeated the point of like well, a massage people kept on sitting on it yeah because when you're supposed to lay on it and look down into the hole okay so you still could have because I, I took do not sit to mean just like stay off no, I think it was just like, don't just sit on it just to sit there because people should be using it as yeah. the way that it was. Intended. But it was also black leather and it was very hot that day. So I don't think it would have been pleasant as the day wore on to lay on it anyway. Yeah. Um, and the other one was the, the comfy chair with the uh, sunglasses with strobe lights inside of them. <laughs> yeah. So both of mine involved like reclining in some manner. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not sure who did the massage table. The, the glasses, that was, was that John? Uh, no, that, I think that was somebody else. Oh, okay. Um, but I liked, what was the name of Chris's? The the in, Infinity Mirror? Yes. Or the Infinity Box or something? Like yeah, that. with the, the light inside. Well, the, the theme was Enlightenment. Right. right. Was that the theme of the whole, like, Bushwick thing, or that was that just the theme of John's I think roof? it was just the theme of John's, oh, okay. of just the Jeffersonian. Right. And I liked uh, Justin's tape. They, yeah, he just, his... Tape Which describing it, I was describing it to my sister, and I was just telling her about all the things, <laughs> and she's like, "So everybody made these really intricate like art projects, and they played music and stuff." And Justin's like, "I'm gonna put tape on the wall." <laughs> that was her take it on could, it, but it, could, it looked really cool. Yeah, I mean, it could sound that way, or it may not sound as exciting, but I mean, it was a, it's basically like a big giant line drawing made with like duct tape or masking tape. Yeah, like different colors and um, stuff. And- yeah, and it was and it was large. It covered like you know, I don't know how. I'm terrible with dimensions of things just by eyeballing them. It's like four feet by six inches. I don't know. Yeah, I can't. Tell. <laughs> no, it was bigger than that. <laughs> no, it was like it was a whole. It was a whole wall. It was, a it was the wall. wall of a stairwell, basically. Yeah, so. it was a giant wall. Yeah, um, yeah, that looked cool. Yeah, and there was this awesome guy, Felix. Oh yeah, he was he was Ooh, the best. He drank beer and peed. Yeah, you wow. know, I mean, you never really know what you, what to expect <laughs> in these sorts of things. But the, I, I, you know, I didn't really think that performance art is like a box of chocolates in that way. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but getting up that morning and and going there, I didn't expect that we'd see a full grown man chug a beer, take off all of his clothes, and pee into a bowl. As the opening act. As the opening act. That it was. I mean, we could go on and on about this guy, <laughs> but suffice to say, it was, in my opinion, it was just really lame. And he stayed in what he claimed to be character for the whole thing, but mm. it was a very unpleasant character. <laughs> yeah, where he was just like booing the different acts and and just kind of just talking everybody down. Oh, and on the recording I made of your set, did you get any of his and Chris's confrontation? Yes, and it's awesome. 
because you can hear what both of them say. Yeah, you right. hear um, hear Felix and Steve and Chris, and uh, it, it was great because I mean this guy, he was like I mean we were we were playing music me and William Hale, and I didn't hear him booing us at all, but listening back to the recording, about three quarters through the set, like after a song, you just hear him going, boo, boo, I didn't like it, boo. And uh, he'd been just acting like a total ass like the whole day. Yeah. Um, just like talking shit to people and just everyone just felt the same way. Just like this guy just is, just needs to go. And so as he's booing, like you hear Steve on the recording and he goes, Hey, could you fucking stop doing that? (laughs) (laughs) Because I think you're a piece of shit. So you should just leave (laughs) in that very Steve kind of way where, yeah, I mean, it it was, it's pretty (laughs) awesome. And, uh, and Chris calls him an asshole and, uh, yeah. And Felix is just like, Ooh, are you going to fight me? You know, oh, I'm so glad you're not going to fight me. But I mean, as they, as it goes on, I mean, they did convince him to leave. So, you know, he let, he left for a few hours and then he showed up again later, but okay, didn't, I didn't know that he left. Cause I remember seeing him towards the end, Yeah, but, but nothing, nothing really happened mm-hmm. after that, but you know, so thank you, Chris and Steve, for sticking up for our honor, <laughs> <laughs> sticking it to him. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was all in all, it was a lot of fun. I, I really you know enjoyed going down there and hanging out with their friends down in the city. Don't get to see those guys as much as I would like. And uh, and yeah, I mean, the show was really really great. I mean, it it was probably one of our best shows. It was um, just like as an audience member, fairly frequent audience member. That was uh, the first time that I I don't know the names of any of your songs. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but <laughs> um, that one song that's I'm not gonna try to. But I think I mentioned it in the car that like I could hear Jared's guitar part that I never knew existed. Right. Yeah. I've any other show I've been to, I've never heard that he had like a little guitar bit going on under the violin yeah i mean in the in the recording of it 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 sounds really really good because you can actually hear so many of the of the different things and and jared's guitar especially really stands out but i could hear it live though like just not even just with the recording just like standing there i heard it and i remember thinking like oh i wonder if they added that or if that's always there and it's just weird it's just always there it's just uh yeah i don't know we've been getting better about trying to make it sound as good as it can when we're playing hmm. so you can actually hear things but yeah I mean there were just a ton of people um, it's it's nice it's always nice to play to a, a, a lot of people who you don't know <laughs> and don't recognize and see that they're all really enjoying it it was it was a really good feeling because I mean we're I'm just so used to playing shows to the same crowd basically and you know and I like sorry we bore you so I, much. <laughs> Well, it, I mean, I like playing shows to my friends for sure. It's just uh, no, it, you know, preaching. To it's nice to know that it's like okay, this music actually can sort of. It, it's not just because they're 
our friends that they're they seem to be into it. It's like oh, all these other people who don't even know us, like they're into it as well. So yeah, I enjoyed it. But anyway, I guess I I could probably make some sort of transitional statement into talking about the Beatles, but I I don't know. It's hard to make draw any sort of comparison between <laughs> what we do and what the Beatles do or did. So I mean, when talking about the Beatles, I mean, where do you even start? Um, well, you you start with the the quarry man. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess like you start with Pete Best. Yeah, that that truly is where. If, all if, the... you're, if you're looking to get into the Beatles, if you're wondering like where do I start, you know. Start with Pete Best. Yeah, just learn everything <laughs> there is to know about Pete Best. I'm and... sure he probably has a biography, right? Autobiography. Yeah. yeah. Um, probably everybody, even slightly associated with the Beatles, has a biography written about them, or written by them. I have a book called Loving John. I've never actually read it. I remember starting it in junior high at some point and being uncomfortable because it was like very sexual. Um, and it was about this girl who was... Yoko Ono's assistant yeah. in the early 70s, um, and then... Uh, what was her name? May Pang, May Pang, yeah. Yeah, and then she, like, had an affair with John, and just, like... She basically wrote this book about, like, their relationship and, like, his experiences during his, like, Lost, Lost Weekend. weekend. Mm-hmm. And I keep meaning to read it, but it just seems so exploitative. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. Like, not that, like, that keeps me from reading or watching other things. Right. <laughs> but, I don't know. Some Someday I'll get to it. An excellent place to start with talking about the Beatles. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> the Lost Weekend, yeah. Um, anyway, I guess let's go back. Let's, on, I mean, there's, there's already been so much said about the Beatles. I mean, if you want to hear like a a biography about any 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 of the of the Beatles or the band or anything, I mean, there's just a wealth of sources to do that. I mean, I really all you can really talk about is just your own personal experience with the music and with the band. Both of us are, I'd say, pretty big Beatles fans. I'd say. So, why don't you, we start with you, just like, you know, what is your experience with with the Beatles? Um, I mean, growing up, I, like everybody, you just, you know they exist, mm-hmm. and they're out there. Um, well, not they, I guess, but the music is out there. I never really paid that much attention to it until the anthology. And um, the the Beatles anthology was a documentary series that was televised in the early mid mid nineties. Okay, yeah, nineteen ninety five. And in, in the couple months leading up to that, which I think it was aired in November, one of the episodes was in November, definitely. Because I remember talking about it with my aunt Linda, who had been to Shea Stadium at Thanksgiving, and like in a couple months leading up to it, they were like on the cover of Life. And these other magazines were doing, like, special issues about them. And I just started, like, before I really started paying attention to the music, I was just kind of, like, reading about them in the magazines. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I mean, obviously I'd heard the music. Mm -hmm. Well, some, you know, whatever they play on the radio from time to time. Right. But I wasn't, like, really paying attention. And then I I got the the Blue Album. The Weezer's The Blue Album. (laughs) Yes. Uh, The, the, um... The 1967 to 1970 collection 
of Beatles songs. <laughs> right. And um, my sister ended up getting the Red Album. Weezer's Not, the Red Album. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which was 62 to 66. And um, there, there were two um, compilations that came out shortly after the Beatles broke up in 1970. Yeah, I, think, I think it was like 72 or something. Yeah. And, um, and it spanned those. It was basically all of their hit singles. Most of the and most of their singles were never on albums mm. specifically. So those collections are kind of like are truly the, the definitive best of collection. Yeah. I guess. Although to hear like the B sides and stuff, you had to get past masters. Past masters, right? But so I, I listened to the '67 through '70 collection like over and over, like leading up to the anthology, and then it got to be Christmas time. So like all three episodes had already aired, and then I had the the single for "Real Love," mm. which was the new Be- well one of the two new Beatles songs right. that came out in relation to the anthology. It was uh, on side one was real love and on side two was babies in black randomly the most like random piece yeah well it's the same thing with um i had the cassette tape of uh of the free as a bird single yeah and the b-side to that was christmas time is here again a truncated version of it which is just totally random and strange but yeah free as a bird and real love were singles that were released in 1985 singles released under the name the beatles yeah and as most of you probably know john lennon had died in 1980 so the only way to release any sort of new beatles material would be to have all four members represented in some way so they took these these two demos that john lennon had recorded before he was killed and uh you know they were never released uh well i mean there were the bootlegs had been circulated around before but and real love had been um in um the movie imagine john lennon which is a documentary that came out in 1988 the opening credits uh you hear the demo for real love Mm. so yeah i mean they're just these like homemade demo tapes of just john lennon playing these these songs and so the surviving beatles all got together and finished them and uh, and in that way, I mean, you listen to, to Free as a Bird, and I mean, it really does sound like a true Blue Beatles song. I just listened to it on the drive over here. So, yeah, that's what those were. Yeah. And um, so for Christmas of 95, I got the first Anthology Volume 1, which was a, a two-disc set of, like, Odds and Ends and Free as a Bird from like the first couple of years of their existence. And then uh, with some money that I got for Christmas, I ended up buying Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. And then within a year, I think, I had all three. And well, I mean, the release of the anthology albums was really oddly staggered. I don't remember like when. It was like two came out within the span of like couple months or something yeah. and then one was released like in the next year yeah which that one was odd because it didn't have like a new song on it yeah but i mean it's still awesome you get to hear all the, like, anthology, the demos anthology for their three is like got some of the best stuff on it yeah sure. like a lot of demos for things that would end up on their early solo albums and stuff but yeah within a year i had all of their albums except for past masters and the like live at the BBC and stuff like that, which I still don't have. Um, 
And I, it, they were like the U.S. versions, so I'm used to like different song orders yeah. on the albums, and I've never heard the full version of Revolver because my version is missing three songs. Yeah, um, like I'm only sleeping and Doctor Robert and Enderbird can sing, which I've heard the versions that are on the anthology, but I'm not sure if I've ever heard Doctor Robert. Yeah, you're not but, missing much. Eh, it's I mean, one of my least favorites. But it's one of your least favorites on what Rolling Stone named the greatest album of all time. Yeah, I guess so. Because it, it's when you're like, oh, well, that's one of the worst Beatles songs. It's like, it's probably better than a lot of other people's best songs. Like, I don't know about Dr. Robert, but like... Yeah, I, I don't know. Something about Revolver... Like, it's got some great songs on it, but... Yeah. I don't know. It's not one that I that I like to just sort of put on and listen to. As far as just putting on, putting one on and listening to it, I think Help is probably my favorite. Hmm. But, I mean, it changes. Yeah. It's, I mean, the Beatles are one of those bands where, like, they existed over the course of a decade. They changed as the times were changing. And, like, when you get into them when you're young, mm-hmm. you change. Yeah. And, like, your fa- like, I wasn't a huge fan of, like, the first few albums when I was a kid. I was like, oh, this is, like, that crappy like old-fashioned right. like pop whatever oh but the cool experimental stuff later that's, that's yeah, where that, it is the cool and then like you grow older and you come to appreciate like the song craft like even on like their first album mm-hmm. just like these brilliant throwaway lines yeah and i mean once you have a greater context of the time period in which they came out because i mean when you're a kid like you have no the only other stuff I like, knew about, like, the early 60s was Bob Dylan, basically. Yeah. Like, I listened to, like, the early Beatles albums and, like, the early Bob Dylan albums when I was in, like, seventh grade. That's that's all I knew about that time period. put yourself back into, like, you know, 1961 or 62 and, like, really think about just, like, what the landscape of pop culture was mm. and what music was like. You suddenly realize that, like, Please Please Me is, like, this the reason why it took the world by storm is because it was just so different. And like, it's the first time that like, I mean, rock and roll is really like, I don't know, exploding in a, in a, in a big way. I mean, rock and roll had been, they, they themselves were inspired by other rock and roll artists before them. Like little Richard and buddy Holly, buddy Holly. And I think they covered more Carl Perkins songs than any other artist. I mean, more than they covered the amount of Carl Perkins songs that they covered was greater than the amount of songs by any other artist that they covered. Right. Not like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, even just like looking at every, everything that had come before them, comparing it to just like the, just the absolute joyful nature of, of so much of their stuff. And it just felt, I mean, I don't know. And it, it like, it really is hard to put yourself into that mindset. I mean, but you just have to think like the music was so revolutionary and different that it drove girls insane. It drove everybody insane. I mean, people literally like went insane. I mean, they called it Beatlemania for a reason. I mean, cause people were just like, it, it was this huge sea change of, I don't know. I, it, I mean, it really feels like the, you know, the sixties begin with, or pop, the 60s pop culture begins with, with the Beatles just changing everything. And I think it's significant, like, it's important to remember that they were basically, like, a, a pop group 
first mm-hmm. and a rock and roll group second. Right. Like they definitely used rock and roll and they played rock and roll, but like they took rock and roll and like brought it to, I mean, rock and roll, obviously, yes, it had already broken. Mm-hmm. It was already like almost passe at a certain point. Cause people were like, Oh, well, you know, like Buddy Holly's dead. Elvis is in the army. Chuck Berry is in jail. Jerry Lee Lewis married his little cousin. <laughs> like yeah. no one cares about this, cra- this crap anymore. And then like, they like added this like pop flavor to it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like a lot of their songs, like, well, rock and roll is one of those things. I mean, it's like when you try to define punk, you can't really define punk. You can't right. really define rock and roll, it's even so though they are musical genres. Um, but like, if you were to play like certain Beatles songs, be like, yeah, this is a rock and roll band. You'd be like, Martha, my dear, what is this? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mr. Moonlight. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Um, they were just they were a pop group that like used rock and they had like the the rock and roll attitude and like that's one of the most important things that make them likable and maybe palatable to adult audiences of that time is in like their press conferences and their tv appearances and everything they Mm -hmm. were funny they were witty they were bright people Mm -hmm. and they had these great personalities with them yeah they weren't afraid to just like just be themselves in every situation mm. um even when like you know they're <laughs> getting uh you know their mbes from the queen and stuff they're just acting like these crazy kids and mm. the whole world is just kind of like oh those rascals <laughs> you know um and i mean that's we'll get into the movies you know later but i mean that is one of the things that those movies one, one of the reasons why those movies are important is that like not just to the Beatles, but to the music film genre, I guess, is that, like, the, because their personalities are injected so deeply into those movies. Um, and they, you know, I, I when watching Hard Day's Night, I just felt like, you know, this is probably, ha- Hard Day's Night probably had a lot to do with just defining the, the characters of the Beatles, mm. I guess. Because there is there is the the John character, and there is the George character, and they you know they had their own unique identities, kind of that they're public faces of who they were as the Beatles. So that's how I came to the Beatles. Let's hear about Max coming <laughs> well, to the Beatles. I mean, it's it's a similar story, I guess. I mean, it. You know, my parents were were Beatles fans. Um, I think for for a lot of people growing up in the 60s that's they probably were Beatles fans as well um but yeah I mean I, one of my earliest memories not just of of music but of anything is standing in my uh my kitchen at home listening to the album Please Please Me and uh and just knowing all of the songs and stuff I mean unlike you Please Please Me was like, that was my first album or first music that I really loved. And uh, that early Beatles stuff is where I, I kind of entered into the to the whole Beatles experience, I guess. Um, another one of my earliest memories is me and my brother Luke going up to my grandmother's house. And in front of my grandparents and my uncles and aunts, we 
kind of we just like sat everybody down and we're like we're gonna sing you a song and uh and we sang them hey jude from beginning to end <laughs> oh my god <laughs> because it was like you know it, that was like the first song that we ever learned or that we ever memorized is this um on video somewhere i don't think so is this gonna end up on a william hale anthology someday i don't know <laughs> No, what will end up on the on, on the on the anthology is Luke and I um, singing Weird Al's Yoda in front of the elementary school cafeteria <laughs> during a talent show. That's awesome. <laughs> um, there is video of that. My uncle Rob was married to a woman named Donna at one point, and my cousin Shannon and I uh, learned the song "Oh Donna" by Richie Valens and saying that it was horrible and awkward <laughs> and yeah yeah i mean like so the music growing up like i i didn't pay attention to like modern music at all like i didn't listen to anything contemporary until middle school so that was the opposite i like middle school is when i got into older stuff i mean there was some stuff like when i was little um like, I mean, I would listen to, like, growing, growing up, I would listen to, like, Billy Joel and Queen, because that's what my parents were into. Mm -hmm. But when I was little, they were still there. Like, Billy Joel and Queen were still putting out albums and stuff. So it right. wasn't technically, like, older. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't until middle school that I really, like, focused on where stuff came from. I, I was listening to, like, Cinderella and Guns N' Roses and bands like that, and, mm. like, which I mean, I, I, I still like some Guns N' Roses, but I've heard Cinderella lately, and it's, it's just horrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just remember like in elementary school, I would go to uh, I would go to school, and like my classmates would be like singing these songs or talking about like these new bands, like the Smashing Pumpkins or I don't know, like Soul Asylum or just I don't know these. these I loved these... Smashing Pumpkins and Soul Asylum. And yeah. I didn't, I, I didn't know who they were, like where they, I'm, I'm just like, how, how do you like find this stuff? How do you like, how is it that everybody knows this and I don't? And I mean, it must've been because my parents just didn't listen to that kind of radio in the car. And we didn't, we, we didn't have MTV or anything. We had, we didn't have cable. We just yeah. had the, you know, broadcast channels. So, I mean, I just wasn't exposed to contemporary stuff at all. My sister was three years ahead of me. And she had control over the radio. Mm, yeah. So. That helps. I did hear a lot of, like, that transition from, like, those hair metal bands into, like, er the early, like, like Nirvana-type mm -hmm. bands and stuff like that. And that is something that I noticed, like, with within all my friends. Of everybody that, who, like, of all my friends who were in my class, like Chris and Nate and Jared, they all had older siblings, um, I, and I was the oldest in my family, so they were all sort of getting these things from their older brothers and older sisters and stuff. And Although, I mean, Jared and Nate, their brothers had horrible taste in contemporary music. Well, it's not, it's not just like music, but just like, um, I don't know. Just no all, offense, all guys, kinds of, for listening. <laughs> just, they were both just all in, kinds of different things, like movies. and my grade. That's weird. I don't know. They, they were just exposed to to stuff in a different way than, than I was, I guess. Um, 
yeah, I remember in seventh or eighth grade just being like, okay, like I need to, I need to know like what's happening in current like music. And I just like, I didn't know even where to start. So I, I remember just like lying in bed and forcing myself to like listen to fly 92 <laughs> Ugh. and just try to like, try to just find something that stuck, you know, be like, I need to have, I need to have like a, some kind of like modern music that I like, you know? <laughs> so I was listening to fly 92, which is like the sort of the pop station i guess that was top 40 and whatnot yeah so at the time it was like a lot of like the britney spears and the backstreet boys and the i don't know just that you're so much younger than i am (laughs) that's so weird that doesn't seem like when you're in like seventh grade britney spears and backstreet boys were yeah that's like when that wow okay i think okay because that was it yeah that was like 2000 or 99 2000 kind of Wow. Is when all that happened. It's weird because that's like, that's not that much younger than me, but like, in the way that like the waves of music went, it just seems like that's so different from what was popular when. Yeah, and I mean, in that whole kind of fad, I guess, the boy band, the, the sudden boy band fan, and like the, I don't know, just that kind of music, it flared up really, really fast and burned bright. So bright. I mean, In Sync was was the biggest band in the world, and then it just just as quickly it just went away. But yeah, so I mean, I most of the music that I knew was was the Beatles. I, really, I mean, there was there was other stuff, but I mean, Beatles was sort of at the center of of it always. Um, and as I got older, my parents gave me like some of their the way that they did it was kind of interesting where they they started with the early stuff and as i grew up they were like okay here's you know here's rubber soul and then here's uh magical mystery tour here's abbey road you know that kind of stuff actually what's funny is i don't know if it was for my birthday or for christmas or whatever but uh, my parents gave me a tape of abbey road and apparently I listened to it, and second song in, Maxwell Silver Hammer, scared the crap out of me because I thought that it was a song about the hammer like falling onto like Max's head or something. Somehow that song just really did not sit well with me, and uh, so my dad went and returned it and got me Magical Mystery Tour instead, <laughs> and. <laughs> I don't know the wisdom in that, really, because you, you, listening to that that tape, that album, late at night, like when you're in bed all alone in the dark, and Blue Jay Way comes on, it's not a very pleasant experience when you're like, you know, seven years old. So for some reason, when I was first getting into the Beatles, Blue Jay Way was like one of my favorite songs. And it's such a random weird song that is but i like that it was creepy because i was yeah. always into like creepy things i don't know and that that whole album magical mystery tour just is very it just has this creepiness to it yeah anyway i mean you know fool on the hill like the eyes in his head and just this very i don't know very strange kind of stuff very strange imagery um you know i'm the walrus 
uh, yeah, just, I don't know. With, with Paul's bloody shoes off to the side so that you know that he's dead. <laughs> yeah. Although we'll get to the visual aspects of that album later, but. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't ever remember a time that the Beatles weren't a part of my life in some way. But I mean, as much as I enjoyed the music, like I didn't really like really get into it until much later, actually. It wasn't until I think 2006 or so I was, I'd graduated high school and it was, I was going to ACC at the time and, um, and the album love came out, which we listened to in the, on the car ride home from the city. Uh, which is, it's a pretty cool album. It's, um, it's a compilation, but it's done in a way that's like, it mashes up a whole, it remixes all of the songs that are on the album. And oftentimes it combines the songs with other songs and uses like the guitar part from one song and the vocal from another and the drum part and kind of creates this experience that's sort of like, almost like if you had listened to all of the Beatles albums back to back and then like fell asleep and had like a weird dream, like maybe that, like that's what you would maybe, you know, it's a mashup of everything. And I listened to it and I really got into like, Oh, you know, trying to pick out like, Oh, what's this part? What's, what's this part from? What's that part from? And I realized that like there were a good amount of albums that I just like hadn't really given much thought to and yeah i mean listening to to that album it it made it made me go out and just i bought the anthology series on dvd the documentary series which i had had remembered seeing when it was on tv my parents had recorded it on vhs that's how i have it and um and it's funny i mean like one of the one of the one of my fond childhood memories is when that free as a bird music video came out and it's a really it's a cool music video because in the same way that love is like this mashup of all of their uh their songs free as a bird is a music video that spans their whole career and like there are all these like little hidden visual easter eggs that sort of reference all their different songs and uh movies and appearances in different places and stuff it it sort of it takes everything from the anthology documentary series and just condenses it all into this this one uh video and i remember sitting there and my parents had like a uh like a note pad and we were just watching the video over and over again on a loop just writing down every beatles reference we could find in it being like oh that you know that uh that kite in the sky that's for the benefit of Mr. Kite and you know this uh the the newspaper taxi that's from Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and uh just all that and so I think when Love came out it I don't know kind of snapped me back to that time and in my childhood and so I I I went out and I I got I bought all of the albums on CD and just listened to them just nonstop and there was a time in there there was like six or seven months where i would i was just completely obsessed with with the beatles and like trying to 
know everything there was to know about every song and yeah i mean i i was just totally obsessed and immersed in it um but yeah so i mean that's that's where i'm coming from i guess (laughs) but i mean we could sit here and talk about the music forever probably okay uh, <laughs> which wouldn't be bad, <laughs> but uh, but this is talking movies after all, not talking music. The year was 1964. <laughs> uh, yeah, take us back, Tim. Take us back. Set it up. Paint a picture. What what, what was going on cinematically in 1964? Uh, you got your you got your Mary Poppins uh, and your My Fair Lady. <laughs> both musicals. Yeah, you got your Pink Panther, I think. Maybe I don't know. It sounds. This is a horrible way to start this conversation. <laughs> <You got> it. <laughs> um. So yeah, we're gonna talk about the Beatles in film. Let's go right to the chase. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they started in in movies in 1964 with A Hard Day's Night, and followed up the next year with Help. Um, both films were directed by Richard Lester. An American director, and although there had been quite a lot of musical films or films that starred popular musical acts of the time, um, like Elvis, they they, uh, they generally they took sort of like pre-existing stock plots and just kind of through the stars into them mm-hmm. like Elvis made a couple of westerns and it's like here's a western let's have that guy played by Elvis and he'll get a few songs in or like oh let's do a remake of Too Many Girls and Elvis will be the main guy or a remake of what I don't know they were just like it was just the same movies that they've been doing decades ago but like mm-hmm. with rock and roll <laughs> Now with 100% more Elvis Presley. Yeah. And, like, some, like, the early rock and roll movies um, aren't bad. Like, um, The Girl Can't Help It, which I don't know about the rest of them. I know that at least Paul loved. That one, like, it's it's sort of, it's a film first and it's a rock and roll film second. Hmm. Um, it was directed by Frank Tash in 1956. And it sort of, like, it has a plot, but it does sort of, like, string along, like, a lot of different cameos by different performers. Mm -hmm. And, um, but you get to see, like, Gene Vincent do Bebop Balula, and you get to see Eddie Cochran do 20 Flight Rock, which that, when Paul and John first met, um, John was very impressed that Paul knew all the words to 20 Flight Rock. Hmm. Because John would often just, like, when he was, like, doing covers, he would just, like, make lyrics up because he couldn't always catch what the real ones were. Ah, yeah. But Paul was like, no, no, I know, the, I listened to it over and over, I got the words. And but and he, he said, I think in the anthology, he said that, like, he learned it from watching the movie over and over. Mm. Um, but, yeah, like, even, like, in the early 40s when, like, Frank Sinatra started making movies, it was just like, here's a movie... 
And here's this random singer guy. Right. I mean, like a decade later, everybody realized, like, oh, he's a really good actor too. But mm-hmm. they didn't. But care they were. They were. You know, it, these music movies, these pop music movies, they were very showy in that kind of Hollywood kind of way. Um, and the thing that the Beatles did in Hard Day's Night that was so different was that it feels just like much more intimate like we're actually like getting to know the real people mm. and they couldn't have thrown any other personality into that movie mm-hmm. it yeah. was definitely it was a Beatles movie for like, sure they had to star the Beatles it was about the Beatles yeah and um and just in the way that it was shot is like you know we're so so much more up close to them I feel like than you know I mean there there are times when we're li- like the the frame is literally just filled with like John Lennon's mouth, like singing or, you know, that, that kind of style of like, which we take for granted now of like, you know, the live performance music style where, Oh, we're going to get the cl- real close ups on like the, the fingers strumming the guitar and, um, you know, and like the foot, like Ringo's foot hitting the, the, the bass drum pedal. Um, well, I mean, it's taken for granted in like music videos and stuff, but if somebody tried to make a film like this now, they, people would just like laugh. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, "Oh, that's ridiculous!" Because everybody's all cynical now. Yeah, but I mean, at the time, like that was fresh and yeah. new, and nobody had seen that kind of thing before. And it really like put you, like, especially like in the in at the end of of Hard Day's Night when they're performing the show, the live the show mm-hmm. to the, all the people, like you know, it put you on stage, and it felt like you were standing there with them, and you get a greater sense of understanding of like what their, their whole experience has been with suddenly becoming like the biggest band in the world. You know, we were with them as they're running away from hordes of screaming girls. Um, yeah. Like the opening shot, I think George even just like falls down and they just keep running. Yeah. Um, the whole thing just feels very impromptu, very, very just cheaply done. It, it's shot like a documentary a lot of times it's just that's what it feels like it feels like a day in the life of of the beatles basically and that's something that i mean you can only imagine like the beatles fan base how much they must have just devoured the movie and just loved it because you know you have legions of fans writing in and saying like you know at a time when, like, you couldn't just go online and look up, like, you know, information about, like, you know, what is John Lennon's birthday? You know, it's like you have these girls writing in, what's your birthday? What's your, you know, all I want to know everything about you. And if they would go, if they're, like, say, if they're being interviewed and they happen to say, like, oh, yeah, you know, we, uh, like, make some offhand remark about, like, oh, yeah, Jelly Babies. Yeah, they're good. The next day, they'll have literally just, like, <laughs> you know boxes and boxes of them people throwing them on the stage yeah because it's <laughs> like we heard you like these like take them all <laughs> um and yeah i mean it's just uh it's crazy so i really like how hard day's night really feels like a reaction a very personal reaction of like that like their sort of thoughts on beatles beatlemania mm. in a way and just like just trying to fit into some sort of normal life and you'd think that, like, people watching it would see, like, how uncomfortable they are in those situations 
and how ecstatic they are in the like the Can't Buy Me Love sequence mm-hmm. where they're just they're free and they're running around in the field and stuff and be like, oh, maybe we should stop hounding maybe them. We should leave them alone. <laughs> but no, they didn't for a couple of years at least. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until they just stopped playing shows altogether. Yeah that it finally kind of died because they're just like we can't do it anymore <laughs> it's killing us now that they'll stop people from like following them around all the time and stuff right but, but it, it stopped like the stopped the, the, mania. the mania the beetle mania yeah. of like just legions of, of people just chasing them down the street yeah. yeah i think the whole like experience of just like being like it's all like claustrophobic and everything and uh, it, it's summed up by uh paul's grandfather when mm-hmm. he's like so far, I've been in a train and a room, and a hall and a room and a room and a room, or whatever he's. I don't right, know what yeah. the hell he says, but so like, and it's like, yeah, you like you you'd like to hang out with the Beatles for a day, but it wouldn't really necessarily be like yeah, because fun. They're being like, uh, they're always being told where to be, what to do. Don't go here. You have to be here at this time. Don't drink that. By you, their comic duo stand-in for Brian Epstein. Yeah, <laughs> um, they're the, by the manager in the yeah. movie who's who's uh you know often at odds with them and it's never in like a nefarious kind of way but it's just like you know i mean he makes remarks about like that lennon he's out to get me i just know it he's doing it on purpose but the beatles the characters that they sort of inhabit have this kind of like naive indifference to things that are going on around them Mm. which is just very charming and very nice to see that because i mean I don't know, you see a lot of, like, the way that um, pop stars act, not just nowadays, but, you know, I mean, it's easy for that for that kind of level of fame to just go to your head and just act like, yeah. you know, I'm the king, and uh, you never, ever got that sense from the Beatles at all. And, like, while they might not enjoy, like, clearly they enjoy the perks of their position, yeah, and um, I mean, it looks like they're having just ridiculous amounts of fun. Yeah, and they can at least like locked into these situations. They can at least bounce jokes off each other and entertain themselves. But if you compare Hard Day's Night to the documentary Meeting People Is Easy, a film about Radiohead, right? It's like that just looks miserable. Yeah, you just want to be like Tom York. What? Just laugh, make a joke, calm down. Yeah. He's just so miserable. Uh, although that I I do love meeting people is easy, but um, it's just like I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like you're squandering all the fun you could be having with this right now. Mm-hmm. And that's that is one thing that like as I was watching Hard Days Night and Help, is that just like the the band the image of the band mm-hmm. of the the rock and roll the pop band has changed so much. Like they you used to be able to like have a whole movie where they're just playing themselves and just having just uninhibited fun just doing whatever the heck they wanted to do and that was like that was cool and like you know people liked that and it was i don't know that's it was expected in a way i guess nowadays if a band were to make a movie like hard day's night it i I just can't imagine that happening like there'd be like all these criticisms about like the size of their egos and stuff mm-hmm. like that is true oh they think they're worthy of like having a movie made about them like what the hell like and back in, in like hard days nighttime everybody was just talking about like this is so fresh and exciting it's like the marx brothers but they they play music and mm-hmm. like nobody i don't think i mean i've 
I haven't read like every contemporary review of Hard Day's Night, but in the ones I have read, nobody is like, "Who the hell do these guys yeah. think they are? Where we're supposed to just watch a movie where they're playing themselves?" And yeah. no one cared about that. Reveling in their fame and good fortune. Hmm. But it's like, why why shouldn't a band just be able to have fun and make a just a fun movie? But I don't I don't even know of like a band today that like would even make sense to have like to have that kind of a movie. I mean, you need like a certain level of a fan base for it to make sense to do it. Yeah. You know. And like after the after Hard Day's Night, a lot of other bands, somewhat smaller bands started making these movies and like Herman's Hermits did I think a couple. There's um I've never even heard of Herman's Hermits. Um they do uh I was like, Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. Yeah, I don't know. I edited that out. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, yeah, I don't know. They had a and oh, um, something tells me I'm into something good. You might recall it from the Naked Gun. I've never seen the Naked Gun. Oh, you should see Naked Gun <laughs> anyway. Um, and like the Spencer Davis group, and I mean the monkeys exist or existed because mm-hmm. of a hard day's night. Specifically, it was it was that it was Hard Day's Night that made the monkeys come about. Yeah, Bob Rafelson and Burt Schneider, who we talked about briefly way back in the Easy Rider episode, right? Um, we're like, huh, this like this is kind of entertaining watching just like this comedic band mm-hmm. just go about their business. Let's make a sitcom, <laughs> and yeah. And the monkeys. And they did. They just and then they had auditions. They found four guys and yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing I was thinking about: you look at in Hard Day's Night when they're playing at the end, and there's just the screaming legion of of fans, hmm. and those w- weren't actors. They were all real fans that they had brought in to do this thing, and so those emotions are real. <laughs> you know, the tears running down their faces are real. The the futile screams of, of their names are real. And I just imagine like, okay, if, if you were a young boy during the time, during 1964 at the, at the height of Beatlemania, would you appreciate the music for what it is? Or would you dismiss it as just like, Oh, it's this boy band, this pop boy band thing. I mean, there were a couple of boys there were, you do see shots. a couple boys. <laughs> and you don't see him in close-up, but you can see him in long shot. There's a young Phil Collins Oh, in those scenes. I knew that. I forgot about that, though. Yeah. I remember hearing about that. Like, I can't crazy. pick him out, but there was a documentary that he narrated or something where he, he like, freezes frame and be like, that's me. Mm. So. Um, yeah, that's crazy. But, I mean... I don't know, like, adults liked the music, and they usually dismissed a lot of rock and roll at that time, and... I mean, maybe, like, some of the younger, like, teenagers would just be jealous, so they wouldn't give it a chance. Mm -hmm. Like, have you seen the movie I Want to Hold Your Hand? No. It's... I think it might be Robert Zemeckis' first film, um... And it's 1978, and it's all about these teenagers who try to get into the Ed Sullivan show to see the Beatles. 
and you never actually see the Beatles. You like there's a scene where uh, Nancy Allen from Carrie is in their hotel room and he's hiding under the bed and you can see like their feet and they have people playing their voices. Oh wow. Yeah. Um and like there but there are like a couple like guys in that movie who are like, "Oh, the Beatles." And like they're all like clearly they're like jealous of them. And then over the course of the movie, everybody, like, hears the music, and it's like, oh, no, this is great. Even, like, the proto-hippie, like, protester beatnik girl who's like, no, listen to Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, <laughs> not the Beatles. Even she's won over. It's a weird movie. Uh, but, yeah, I just think about, like, like, okay, there, there you know, there are actually pop bands who do make movies mm. today. Like, I work at Amy's Dinner and Movie, and sometimes we have birthday parties come in, and we'll show either a DVD or one of the films that we have. A few months ago, uh, a group came in, a group of young pre-teen tween girls, um, and they had a DVD of One Direction, a movie about and by One Direction, that boy band. Um, and I had never heard any of their music, even. I had seen some of their merchandise in, like, Walmart and stuff, but I didn't, I you know, I didn't really know much about it. Um, but I, I put it in and started it for them, and um, I watched, like, the beginning, and if you were to just, like, take some of the footage of the crowd in, in that One Direction movie and just make it black and white, you might think they're at a Beatles concert. The way that they are just screaming and see, just I didn't know people still with, did that. Yeah, like that. You know, they're they're like they're holding up the signs, like you know, with the with all the boys' names, like "We love you, oh my god," just just going nuts. See, most of the shows that I've been to in my life, it's mostly like grown-ups, mm-hmm. so I don't really know how kids act at concerts. I'm assuming it's only certain acts, not like. Yeah, not every <laughs> a Beck concert like the, right. there's gonna be like all these girls like oh my god I love you maybe yeah he's know. probably past his, <laughs> that time in his career I'd imagine but yeah and I mean I'm watching the you know the the One Direction the group and they're you know up there singing and the, the stadium that they're playing to is just fucking huge and it's just packed. And you know that we're we're getting glimpses of them, like, you know, in their tour bus and like, you know, in the hotel rooms, acting like you know, fun-loving kids and stuff. And all I felt while watching it was just bitterness. <laughs> so it was more. Of, it was like a documentary then, right? Or was um, it, it was like... kind of. It was like a. It was like a tour documentary kind of thing. I think. So there was no like acting or anything like. No, right. no. It was just kind of like them acting like it was just them being themselves i guess that's like when i was growing up i used to watch um hanging tough live which was this new kids on the block video that was like it was a mixture of like concert performances with like backstage stuff and it felt staged i guess but like it was a documentary Mm. and you know there i'll sound like such such an old man but Part of the reason why, like, the Beatles works in that realm is because they were so talented. Mm. And a group like One Direction is not 
by comparison because they're not writing their own songs. They're not playing instruments. They're literally just standing up there, you know, and then, you know, maybe they can sing, but it, it isn't the same kind of, it isn't the same kind of thing. Well, that was another revolutionary aspect of the Beatles. They were writing their own songs. Elvis never wrote any of his songs. Mm. And, um, also like they weren't just a band in the sense they were a group of guys who played music together. They were a band. They all had like their functions and they worked together like writing their own songs. They would trade yeah, off it was like vocals. All of them would sing different songs. By the end of it, they were all writing songs mm-hmm. and that hadn't really existed before. Yeah. I mean, and that is just crazy to like, to just think about hmm. because it's so, it, that you just take that idea for granted. Like that's what a band is, you know? Yeah. That's, I remember in high school, like I, I can't play any instruments and I can't really sing. And I knew a couple people who had bands and I'd be like, Oh, I, I write songs. Can I like write some songs and you can play them? And they were so offended <laughs> and they were like, no, we're a, we're not a cover band. We're a band. And I'm like, I know, but I can be like, I can, mm-hmm. I'm not going to write all your songs, but like, I've written these songs. Do you want to like play some of them? And they wouldn't even like look at them or anything. They were just, they well, wouldn't. I, I mean, that is like a, <sighs> but like 50 years ago, that was, that's just how it was. You well, didn't like, you I don't sp- know if it was, I mean, there is a difference between, I mean, yeah, back then, I mean, you'd have like contemporaries and peers like writing songs for each other right like, you hear about like paul mccartney writing songs and just giving them to like uh the bad finger but then there were like people who weren't even performers just like just like songwriters. songwriters yeah like before carol king put out any albums she was just like it was like goffin and king and i mean and that still and... happens today i mean that's how lady gaga started she was just a songwriter yeah for... but it's not no one in like rock and roll quote unquote like wants to do that anymore they feel it's not like there's no integrity to it or something. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't know. It is different. Like, cause I'm in a band mm. I mean, we've played shows and then afterward somebody will just say like, you know, Oh, like, can I be in your band or can I like, you know, do this thing or that thing or whatever. And it's just kind of like, uh, like, no, I mean... Well, being in the band is kind of a weird thing to Like, ask. we're... I don't know. <laughs> like, did they want to replace somebody, or did they just want to... No, it's just kind of like... There, there is a, there's a weird element between, like, people that you want to collaborate with. Yeah. Because no band, like, is singular, or just, like, insular, you know? Like, there's, there's no band that's just that just does everything internally. There's always going to be more people doing other things. And that's actually one thing that I was surprised about when I... I watched some of the special features on Hard Day's Night. It's just like how much of like that of, of the Hard Day's Night, not just the movie, but the album and the songs was influenced by not just the Beatles, not just like George Martin, but like Richard Lester, for instance, mm. the the director and like some of the producers and the write the screenwriter of the movie. They had all these inputs about like what the titles of the songs might be, like what everything, how the album could be associated with the movie and stuff because you don't think about the album being the soundtrack to the movie so much because the album stands alone it stands yeah. apart as like it's one of this part of the beatles canon you know 
you would think that it would have been like, oh, we have this album, we're going to release this album, we should have a movie to tie into it, you know? But the opposite was true. It was like they had this three-picture deal, and they were going to make a movie with the Beatles, and they're like, well, if we're going to make a movie with the Beatles, we need some new songs for it. So they wrote, you know, like, songs specifically for it. Can't Buy Me Love. And, uh... What's if I Fell? If I Fell, yeah. And, uh, it got down to the end, and they're like, we they didn't even have a title for the movie, and famously, Ringo said the, the phrase, A Hard Day's Night, one, one day, and they thought it was, like, just a funny phrase, and they're like, well, maybe that, that should be the name of the movie. And then it literally came down to, like, they're in, like, the last couple weeks before the movie was going to be released and they're like we can't release this movie without having like a title song to go with with the name of the of the movie and so john and paul wrote it in like a night the song hard day's night and that's how that worked so i mean it you know there are you know bands do wind up collaborating with a lot of different people to like make the music that they do and create the image of themselves and do all that kind of stuff but, you know, you want to work with the people that you want to work with, I think. Um, I don't know. I mean, the people that I approached were, like, friends of mine. Yeah, that that is different. And it's not like they had ever... <laughs> this is like they hadn't even played a show or anything. Right. They were just, like, rehearsing They, were, they, they weren't a real band at that point. Yeah, it's like, oh, we've played a couple times in this guy's, like, bedroom or something. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, oh, I want to play some of my songs. and Nope. Someday. <laughs> but, uh, so, I mean, I guess, like, comparing, you know, th- it might make me sound like an old man, but I think it's true, like, the Beatles were just more talented than than most of the bands that are are like that. It's hard to think of a band now that has, like, the level of popularity the Beatles had where anyone knows who they are like they're walking down the street and they're like mobbed by fans like i they don't there's not that recognition i feel like the majority of bands today could just be walking down the street and nobody even knows that they're in a certain band i mean there was a time when like for for those like first like two or three years of beatlemania were like the major newspapers every single day would have headlines or some kind of story on the front page about what the Beatles were doing mm. because it was just so they were they were so huge and everybody wanted to know every, anything that they could about them that kind of that level of fame for for a musical band like it just won't happen again it just can't happen again i feel like the beatles were this kind of like cultural release where it was like it had been somehow building up and then it was just like rock and roll band music is here and the 60s are here and it just was just exploded and everyone just became obsessed with it and then we're like ah okay you know now we're on like the on the down of it unless there was like some sort of just it would have to be really revolutionary and like really different to to capture worldwide attention like that but i mean in this day and age where you have like something like the internet that makes it so much easier for music to be put out 
independently. It's great because great musicians can just do things on their own. Yeah. But it's not great because you have this ocean of music that is constantly being added to. And how are you ever going to find anything in that ocean? And that's like, um, every year I see things like trending on Yahoo or something like that, where they're like, oh, what's the song of the summer going to be? And like all these predictions, like, oh, I think it's going to be this song. First of all, I don't know what that means. I don't know where like this, like there's this group somewhere in a room that's like, oh, we voted. It's, it's this horrible song. Um, but usually the songs that they mention, like, I don't even ever end up hearing them. Mm-hmm. Or I'll read about them in that article and I'll be like, maybe I should go check that out. Like, I don't, I really don't know what that is. Like, it's just like, and I feel like so many people just hear music now by going and seeking it out for themselves that that doesn't even affect them. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, like, there's not a lot of people who just like put, well, I mean, there are a lot of people who put the radio on and just listen to whatever, but... Usually, that's, that's the thing. Even when I was I a kid, know. like I just wasn't exposed to like stuff like that. And and today, I feel like it's even easier to just ignore all of that. Like I watched MTV and stuff, but it was. I mean, at least when I was in like junior high and stuff, I would just uh, like set a set the VCR for 120 minutes every Sunday night and just watch that and see what all the new like kind of underground music was and listen to Matt Pinfield like interview people who. I haven't heard from since just mm. like these random acts from around the world. Yeah. And so I got into a lot of like smaller bands and stuff. And then that show naturally got canceled. And then it's, I don't know. Like I never watched TRL or any of that stuff. I, I had friend like when TRL hit big, like yeah. I had specifically a, a friend who was into that whole thing. But anyway, I could I could imagine myself just being like bitter about the Beatles during the time that they were really popular. Have you seen um what other Richard Lester films have you seen? <laughs> uh Superman 3 and 2. And 2, yeah. But technically, eh, you know, I mean 2 is is kind of weird cuz it, it was shot by Richard Donner and then Richard Lester took it over, so it's kind of like half of his movie. Half and wasn't it supposed to be Lester, like, all the way? Because he had done the two Musketeers, well, not the two Musketeers, but the three Musketeers and the four Musketeers for the Salkines. And then they were going to do Superman and Superman 2 the same way, like, shoot them back to back like they did the Musketeers yep. movies. And they actually did. Like, Richard Donner shot Superman and most of Superman 2, and it was like all at the same time mm-hmm. that they shot it. And it was supposed to be, like, basically just like one whole one big movie that kind of just was split in two parts but which is why at the beginning of superman the movie you see uh general zod getting put into the album cover into the into the the (laughs) flying album cover in space um when they're not they don't show up in that movie again um and they show up in the sequel I saw the first Superman movies the same night. That's got to be weird to people who just, like, watched it and watched the first one in theaters. Then, like, a year later, mm. like, the whole time they're just like, what was the deal with those Yo, guys? And then, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I've seen a few. I don't like saying Richard Lester. I'm going to say Dick Lester. 
Okay. 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 <laughs> Even though I think he was always credited as Richard. For some reason, in my mind, it's always Dick Lester. Well, probably because like, in interviews and stuff, people refer to him as Dick Lester. All right. I wrote in um, this one class at Purchase, we watched one of his movies, and I kept... I was talking to like a couple of people in the class, and I kept saying Dick Lester, and they're like, why do you keep saying Dick Lester? It says in the credits, Richard Lester. And I, I was like, I don't know. And then, so like the professor walked by, and I was like, is it... Dick Lester? Do people say Dick Lester? And he just goes, sometimes people say Dicky, And skipped away. <laughs> and it was the weirdest thing. He was an awesome professor. Greg Taylor. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so I've seen the two Beatles movies. And then there's The Knack and How to Get It. Which is another... I think that was his last black and white film. It was made between the two Beatles movies. And it's very much of that time. And it's it's a really interesting like bridge between them. Um, it's got that same like comic sensibility and the whole like silent movie type of comedy with the like the sped up film and everything mm-hmm. like that. Um, and then after Help, there's a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, which I really love. And um, I think the only other thing I've seen is. Uh, Butch and Sundance, the early years, which hmm. is a prequel to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, made like 10 years after. Really? And it, I don't remember really liking it. Um, it Obviously, they weren't able to get Paul Newman and Robert Redford to be in it, but they have Tom Berenger and William Catt. William Catt, you might remember as Tommy Ross in Carrie. <laughs> oh. Um, but, yeah. And, and in Tom Berenger from Platoon. Yeah. Um, but the films of his that I've seen in that, like, 1964 to 1966 period, it's just, they're so wild, and they just, they have this energy to them. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen anything he did before that, so I don't know if that's something, like, like, if, if the Beatles were, like, a shot of adrenaline to him, or if that's something he brought on his own. That was something that he, he had, uh started in tv mm. um with the goon show the goon show which was kind of like a pre-monty python-esque kind of a show it's the one with like spike milligan and peter sellers, peter sellers and yeah. yeah um and apparently the beatles were fans of the goon show and uh and it kind of just serendipitously happened where the producer and it's actually kind of an interesting story the way that the the movie even came about because like Brian Epstein, the, the Beatles managers, before the Beatles had really struck big, like they had gotten like they were they were growing in popularity in the UK, but before they had come to America or really taken the world by storm, um, Brian Epstein sold a, a three picture deal to a production company in America, and the 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 producer who got the the three picture deal was didn't even know who the Beatles were at the time that the deal was struck. One of the Mirishes? I don't remember. Um and then literally like you know like less than a year or like a year after, suddenly they're the biggest bands in the world and he's sitting on this like amazing, you know contract. And so he's like, Well we're we gotta like, you know, we gotta make a movie. 
and the the budget for it was so ridiculously small it was like it would it actually george martin said that the the budget for the movie hard day's night was less than the budget for the beatles first album please please me it was made for less money than their first album and their first album was recorded in one day (laughs) yeah so it's that's just crazy to think about and i mean in that low budgetness definitely comes through yeah uh while you're watching hard day's night so they needed somebody who could like shoot quickly on a really tight budget and just turn it around as fast as possible and so i it makes sense that they would look to television directors to do that and so yeah they tapped richard lester and just basically said i don't care what the movie is just whatever you think is is best and you know i mean pairing richard lester with the beatles is kind of like it feels like a match made in heaven kind of thing where the the sensibilities and sense of humors of them Mm. just melded perfectly and uh and also the the screenwriter apparently was what's funny is i mean you watch hard day's night and it's easy to think that like most of it was improv and the things that they're saying were just you know off the cuff kind of one-liners and stuff because that's how it plays but apparently most of those those witty remarks and one-liners were actually written in script form and it was what's interesting i guess like the 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 initial script was much much different it played more like a standard kind of hollywood narrative um the screenwriter met with the with the band for just like a day basically and kind of just got to know them and was able to pull from that like what he felt like their personalities were and i'd be interested to like see what that that initial first draft is Mm. you know um apparently it's it's kind of similar to what the plot is of a hard day's night but it's more like it's more you know more scripted dialogue more more focus on the the grandfather subplot (laughs) yeah maybe yeah um maybe he was the lead in that but you know as they were shooting the script kind of it was less it became less of a script and more of just like here's something we could do here's a here's a guideline of, of something and it, they 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 you know they didn't like have any idea of what kinds of shots they were going to get or anything going ahead of time they would just get onto the set and just go okay well this is what should happen next and then they they would just shoot it not thinking about it in terms of like oh we should you know close up wide shot medium shot this kind of stuff um they were just rolling 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 not looking back really and just (laughs) and stuff comes through like in that opening shot where like george harrison just trips and falls down flat on his face or when um they're playing if i fell and he leans on his amp and the amp falls over or his shoe falls off as they're getting into the helicopter at the end just all these like this is all george i think those are all george actually (laughs) what the hell is wrong with george (laughs) um you know, just these like random things that just happened, yeah. and they were just like, okay, you know, it's, yeah. it's we'll just throw it in the movie. It's it's there, and that's part of what makes it the movie come across as something not like 
because it's not polished. Mm. It's not Hollywood movie. It's something much more intimate and real. And it just it it's the perfect way to get their personalities across, which was really the main sort of driving goal of of it was just like we just need to showcase them, you know. The the story doesn't really matter. The story is like isn't even really a story. Yeah. <laughs> and it's got that great stark black and white cinema verite style lighting. Like I haven't seen a lot of those early like films like Primary and stuff where they're just like Primary is basically just these documentarians are following JFK around. And Hard Day's Night, it's like, well, technically it's like, yeah, it's the same thing. We're just following the Beatles around. Mm-hmm. And like D.A. Pettabacher had made um, a Beatles documentary about their first visit to the U.S. Um, I'm not sure what year that was released. And um, like I've seen clips from it. And it is that sort of just like, you know, handheld black and white camera. just um, And like, there are some really beautiful moments in Hard Day's Night where they just catch... The, like, I, when we were talking about gravity... I mentioned my love of flares, like mm-hmm. how it gets like when you shoot towards the towards a light source and you get like the flares in the lens. Like, there's a lot of great moments like that. Yeah, and for sure. Where it just seems like, oh, that just happened. And I mean, there are definitely shots like, like the final shot with the helicopter taking off, where clearly that was like they had to set that up and everything. But then it's it's beautiful though mm-hmm. as the helicopter goes up and like all the autographed photographs like come spilling out. Yeah. And well, I mean, what's funny is like um in the interview with Richard Lester that I was watching, he was saying that like, you know, they made the movie without really thinking, putting much thought into it. Mm. Um, and then like years later, you know, he would be invited to go talk at like colleges and stuff. And he was sitting in a, in a college class where they were, they had been analyzing hard days night Mm. and he was there and the professor was talking about like, you know, teaching the class like now like you know you can see what mr lester was trying to do here right by cutting from this shot to this shot and like doing all this stuff and clearly this was all thought out and it represents this and that and whatever and they're talking about like the end shot and everything and <laughs> he was like you can't really say that you can't really tell them the truth in that kind of situation because it would make him look like an idiot and you'd kind of just like tear down the facade but the truth was that like nothing was was planned at all it was just whatever they could shoot they shot it well i mean the the final shot they had to lay down under the helicopter before it took off right there's so that at least to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what that's what's funny is like because in my memory i had heard that like the uh can't buy me love sequence was just literally like it wasn't a part of the script or anything like that it was just like it just sort of happened naturally mm. And so, as I was watching that, it suddenly cuts to a helicopter shot. And I'm like, oh, well, they must have at least had a... They must have at least known that they wanted to have a helicopter there. Because that's something that just you can't just have, like... You can't just get into a helicopter and just shoot that in the middle of, like, this random thing you're shooting on the side, basically. But that's literally what happened. Like, they were shooting, and a helicopter just happened to land from a, from a, a different something else was going on and the helicopter just showed up and they're like, maybe we can use the helicopter. (laughs) And so they were just like, they got into the helicopter and just flew up. And like, that's how that happened. What's weird about that sequence is, um, there is like, 
I don't know if it was shot over the course of two days, but I know that like there's the story of oh, John couldn't be there uh, for something in that scene because his book in his own right had just come out and he had to like go somewhere for some sort of event. It, it was shot book. over the course of two days. Yeah. Okay, because I was gonna say like he's definitely in that scene. No, because and, like, but because then what, at the end there's just the three of them. Yeah. Because sorry we hurt your field, mister. What happened was when they got into the helicopter, that was one of the last things that they shot, and they didn't realize that the battery in the camera was, like, dying. Mm. And so what happened was, like, as they as the, they, they were in the, the helicopter and went up, the camera operator was, was shooting them down below on the field running around. And as the battery was dying, the, the frame rate in the camera slowly went from, like, 24 frames a second to, like, 18 frames a second you know slower and slower and slower until you know it was until the battery ran out and so then when they played back the the dailies they saw that it was all sped up because the you know the frame rate was was lower and so they're like oh this is a really great looking effect so they went back and like reshot all that stuff in, in the the high speed stuff but they couldn't get john one of the weird things about watching it now um, is like the way that the music fits in with the visuals. Mm. It's a little jarring. And like, I've read like reviews complaining about that. Um, because of the, I'm not sure if it was 24 frames they were shooting. Cause I think it might've been 28. Yeah. I'm not sure. It might've been, uh, because in, cause it's different in England. Um, but because of that, they had to like all the songs, like if you listen to like, if you're used to listening to the album, a hard day's night and you're used to hearing them that way. And then you watch the movie, they're all at like this slightly slower speed hmm. because they had to match them to like their mouths right. as they were like singing or like when they were like playing the guitar, they had to match the strums and everything. Yeah. That is one thing that like, I, I think one thing that would make the movie better in my opinion hmm. is if, there were they they weren't like lip syncing to those songs when when we see them actually playing not so much in the scenes like the Camp I Me Love scene where it's just like they're just running around and we the song has yeah. just overlaid it but like when they're like you know sitting in the in the studio uh singing you know if I fell or these other things or on the train or on the train like it would have been cooler if they were actually playing those and so they were these kinds of like just these live alternate takes of of those songs i think it would have made it would make the movie a little more unique in that way where it's like oh there are these tracks that are like for this movie of them playing it but i mean i get why they that didn't happen in that way because they were just shooting it like so ramshackle (laughs) um like there were reviews now granted these were like amazon reviews so you know um contemporary reviews yeah um by the average everyday folk but they were saying like oh i really hope uh when criterion puts out their version they'll fix the audio and they'll make it sound like it's supposed to sound not realizing that like well then they'd have to like speed Speed up up the visuals and they're gonna be like dancing around like weird like it's just something that we kind of have to just deal with and honestly, like it doesn't it doesn't bother me that much. I didn't even really notice it. There were also complaints about how um, the film has been cut, and it's in the improper aspect ratio because they were like it's supposed to be a full screen film because 
when I had my MPI VHS, it was open matte. And it's like, well, yeah, a lot of like VHS full screen versions are open matte. But when it was shown in theaters, it wasn't necessarily open matte. So you like you are you are getting more information on the VHS, but it's not necessarily what the the filmmakers intended it to mm. look like. So I don't know. There's no satisfying some people, especially people on Amazon. Yeah, <laughs> and especially cinephiles. I don't think these were cinephiles. No, probably not. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, they, they you know they at least have that knowledge of you know. But it it is similar to. Um, another American director working in England, Stanley Kubrick mm-hmm. and like all his films when they were, when he put them out on DVD, well not when he put them on DVD, when they were released on DVD, he insisted that they all be full screen and open yeah. mat and stuff. But I think now there are editions where they're all widescreen. Yeah. So, but I'm assuming that they also offer the full screen. I don't know. There's Cause he some... was very particular about the way his films were released. Right, because so. at the time, like television movies were starting to be shown on television and so he was like, oh, when, when my movies are shown on television, I want to make sure that, like, I'm shooting these properly so that it can function both in the theatrical way and for that, the full, the full screen yeah. aspect ratio. And so he framed that he took that into consideration with all of his framing, which is, uh, it's crazy. He was so, so, uh, just crazy. He was crazy. <laughs> But the film that he put out in 1964, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, mm. has that same sort of like stark black and white realistic um, sense that like Hard Day's Night has visually. Yeah. And there, it's similar to like other like British films of the period that, well, we talked about a little bit in the, in the Fist in the Pocket episode that like uh, the Angry Young Man movie is coming out of England. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Richard Lester kind of fits into that. Even he is American, but he like I, I'd put him with like Terry Gilliam and Stanley Kubrick as like, yes, they're Americans technically, right? But after a point, they're British directors. Yeah, like they're making British movies. They happen to have been born in America. That's true. And like that's definitely the sensibility. I mean, like. The humor in Terry Gilliam's films. I mean, he was in—he's an American, yes, but he was in fucking Monty Python. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you think of like the hum, like the humorous bits in like Clockwork Orange and stuff. That's all like that. For sure. British I mean, all humor. like Clockwork Orange is like a—it is a British movie. And like, Dick Lester. I mean, like he has like all these different influences, but like one of them is definitely like the sort of like the British like music hall tradition and like these sort of like broad body jokes mm-hmm. that are like very obvious and not necessarily funny but they're funny because they're not right funny. because they're so deadpan and just like that yeah. we said the joke and like his um i mean like his camera tricks and everything they harken back to like um some of like the serials in like the teens and 20s by like louis foyad like um i mean you see it more in help maybe uh, like uh, you think of the character from Les Vampires that Musi Zora played uh, Irma Vep like she looks so much like um, the main girl in Help like her costume and everything mm. um, I'm forgetting the character's name but like the girl who like switches sides and right, starts to help, who starts help yeah. 
like she, like towards the end she's got like this cape and everything and and there's I mean and in help there's all like the intertitles and stuff and it is like a ser- like a cliffhanger like every couple of minutes like oh how is he gonna get out of this one mm-hmm. but speaking of help yeah. we should probably uh, talk about help yeah <laughs> help was actually the movie that when I was a kid. I didn't really see Hard Day's Night very much. I think I saw some of it when I was a kid. But we had help, uh, a bootleg VHS of it. And, uh, yeah, Luke and I watched it all the time. And it's funny because, like, watching it today, just before recording, was the first time I'd seen the movie in maybe, like, 15 years maybe more than that like it's been a long time since i've seen it it's probably been like six or seven years for me and um and it's the first time i've seen it on dvd as well but for years i i always said that like oh yeah help is great help is help is awesome and uh after watching it i feel like i might have been i don't know it's it doesn't quite hold up to my to the memory of it see what's interesting is about that is I watched Hard Day's Night a lot growing up. And, like, that, but I had it taped off TV. Now, whereas Help, um, actually had, like, on, like, regular, like, store-bought VHS and stuff. And I watched it a few times, and I, I found it kind of boring. Hmm. And then, you know, I rewatched Hard Day's Night the other day in preparation for this, and I was like, yeah, it's good. It's not as, like, energetic as I remembered. Mm-hmm. I expected to be like sucked right into it like right. I used to be. And then I watched Help earlier today and I'm like, "Well, this is amazing." <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like of the opposite school of thought. Yeah, but. that's that's funny. Um Yeah, I don't know. Like there like there are some there there are, it, it was a very surreal experience watching it actually because I hadn't seen it in so long and because there are some moments in Help that have stuck with me so vividly yeah. for so long like for some like weird scenes too like the like the scene of them when they're all on bikes and they're just like riding around in a circle <laughs> saying like yeah we'll get them we're gonna go back there like for some reason that scene always stuck out in my mind um the apartment that they live in yeah. i always loved that apartment yeah and that's actually one thing that i that really did hold up that apartment is awesome and uh And it's funny because I always assumed for some reason when I was a kid that like one day I would actually go into a house and there would be like this little recessed sort of nook where you could lay down and like it had like bookshelves and stuff. John's pit. Yeah, because I just thought that like that must be a feature prevalent in houses and in apartments and stuff. Unfortunately, I've never seen that anywhere. And seeing it today, I'm just like that thing is so cool i think in the trailer it even says like will john ever see his pit again really yeah yeah if i was ever to have a dream house i want i want john's pit because yeah i don't know even when i was a kid i just loved that thing i've always wanted a pit and he sleeps in it too yeah oh man it's so so great (laughs) i want that pit i like the idea of um and this is something that like growing up you just assume like oh all these bands well of course they all live together they're a band <laughs> yeah <laughs> and th- no that's not necessarily true i mean like in different i mean 
in the early days, yes, the Beatles out of necessity would have to like live together, but like that's mostly when they were like like traveling playing in all, Hamburg or something. Yeah, traveling like that, all over or, the place and they're like staying in the same hotel rooms and just you know. But as far that. as their home, not necessarily. And then, but I mean, like in like the later sixties when you had like all like the hippies in San Francisco. I mean, like Grateful Dead. Yes, there was the Grateful Dead house. They all lived together and like the different bands all lived together and stuff. But it is very rare. That, I mean, even through high school. That was like the dream, yeah. Of like, come on, guys, we should all can't you, can't you wait to just grow up and we can all live in our own like all live in our own house. We'll wake up and we'll make movies and then we'll go to bed and yeah, it's yeah. basically like what the garage was, just like a whole house. Yeah. <sighs> but <laughs> now nowadays I think about that and I'm like, eh, I don't know if I could really deal with that. I'm I'm an old man now. I don't do well with roommates, so I think I think I I would just wind up getting annoyed with with things. Yeah, but. I I think one of the reasons I sort of favor help now over a hard day's night is that it just uh, like the pacing is very steady. Hard day's night seemed like there was a lot of starting and stopping. Definitely, or help. It's just like it starts out. It sets up the plot very quickly in just, mm. like, that quick opening sequence and th- and then, like, to the song Help, where they're throwing darts at the screen, which is such a great visual. The oh, yeah, color sure. darts on the black and white screen, yeah. it's almost, it looks like 3D almost. Yeah, um, when that first dart comes in, it, like, shocks you almost. Yeah. Like, what? What's going on? Because you're just, like, <laughs> you know, and it's cool. I like the way that, like, when the Beatles are introduced, they are in black and white on the set that is very reminiscent to the set that they were on at the end of hard day's mm-hmm. night. So it's kind of like, you know, bridging that gap from hard day's night and bringing it into color and stuff. And, um, it just like, you already know, like you just get, and they're like, Oh, we need to sacrifice this person. Where's her ring? We can't sacrifice her without the ring. And then you cut to Ringo's hand with a ring on it. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well, it, we're like two minutes in mm-hmm. We know that they need this girl to be wearing that ring to sacrifice her, and we know that Ringo has the ring, and they know that Ringo has the ring. Okay, let's go. Mm-hmm. And then it just takes off from there, and then it's just like one thing after another. And um, I, I just, I don't know, as a, as a kid, I just remember it like dragging for some reason. I don't think it ever... I mean, I loved it when I was a kid. Yeah. And... It goes to some crazy places, things that I totally forgot about, like the fact that Paul McCartney shrinks down to a tiny... Paul's adventure on the floor. Naked. I love that. Like, I totally forgot that that happened. And then when it (laughs) happened, I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) Whoa. It suddenly felt like a deja vu from a dream I had a long time ago or something. And the little bits like, um, I think it's, it's Ringo and John in the elevator like at the, towards the very beginning mm-hmm. and Ringo just says like what was it that first attracted you to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> and there's just like little bits like that I was like wait a minute what's going on here what's with these Beatles all living together but uh, <laughs> yeah um, uh, well, the thing about help is that I feel like we're we spend too much screen time with everybody else who's not the Beatles I feel like we're with the 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 sacrificial people mm. just too much and I I don't feel like the Beatles are really driving the movie forward. 
it in is the, more in similar. the same way that Hard Days and I mean in the way that Hard Days Night really is all about just like you know they are very front and center, and um, yeah I don't know something about help just like it it doesn't I don't feel the same connection to them as I do in Hard Days Night. It is more similar to like the Elvis movies in that way where there's there's a movie and the plot's going on and the Beatles are just kind of in it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not about them. They're, they just happen to be there. And I think if Hard Day's Night existed, like, if Help was the only Beatles film, it probably just wouldn't really go over that well. But because you've got Hard Day's Night where you get to know them. Right. And you get to know their life and, like, their, like, experience and stuff. Then you go on to Help. And it's like, oh, okay, these guys I know are like in trouble and they're going on these adventures. <laughs> right. My friends are in trouble. I don't know. That's, that's how I felt about it. And there's also the little bits like, um, like I got it to some degree years ago watching it. Like the thing with like George hitting on the main girl played by Eleanor Braun. Um, like, and you've got to hide your love away where he sort of like leans towards her, like playing guitar at her trying mm-hmm. to be like, Hey, look at me. But, like, it's set up, like, this weird, almost subtextual rivalry between him and Paul, Paul yeah, for because, her affections. Yeah, because Paul is, is, like, you know, oh, we've got a connection. And, like, you know, they wind up slow dancing together. And, you know, yeah, it is strange. I, I do like how all of those, like, little subplots, like, are just kept so subtle. And just, yeah. like, it, like, it's not, it's just there's extra. all these little things that are kind of continuing throughout it that just, like are barely there but the, i i like that i yeah. like that they, they don't feel the need to be like to fo- to somehow shoehorn in or force this like oh we're gonna have this rivalry rivalry between paul and george which you could totally imagine somebody else like if somebody else was making the movie like would want to sort of just put that in yeah. like oh we need to have like we need to have drama we need to have conflict but <laughs> you know it's, it's not necessary it's just it's more just like a fun little thing that yeah. just makes it feel more real i guess and like there are like connections throughout like little little payoffs like when you when she first meets the beatles she's like winking at paul and george is like i didn't get winked at or something like yeah. that. and then later in like a later scene like she's winking to paul again and but george thinks she's winking to him and reacts and there's confusion there. I mean, it's nothing big or anything. It's just these little bits. Um, but another thing is how the scene where they're trying to convince... It's weird, because like, they start to turn on each other. They're all like, oh my god, we have to protect Ringo. Right. And then there's just this one scene where they're sitting in Buckingham Palace. Yeah. And like John has a knife and Paul's trying to talk Ringo. And like, well, you know, you don't need that yeah, finger. Like, hey, George, you've seen Ringo use that finger lately? Like, no, I haven't seen it. Yeah. And then, it's, <laughs> and then you start to realize, like, well, what are they talking about exactly? Yeah. And like, I think Paul actually uses the term extraneous member at one point. It's like, well, of all the Beatles, I mean, you know... They'd had other drummers before they finally had Ringo. Mm. And, you know, he was the one who... He wasn't doing any songwriting. Right. And he was just, like, this extra guy. And, like, it's sort of like... I mean, the character of Ringo that is set up in Hard Day's Night, where he is the outsider. He's the butt of their jokes. Yeah, and he's just, like, this, like, sad sack moping about... um, like I mean, that whole wonderful sequence with the instrumental version of this boy. This boy, yeah, that's one um, of the best scenes. In, yeah, in Hard, Hard Day's, Day's Night, Night for sure. 
Um, and like that sort of like sets up like his insecurities that he already has. And then in help, he's like, well, you know, I guess I don't belong. These guys just can get rid of me easily. I'm an extraneous member mm-hmm. when they're, I mean, they're talking about his finger, but it could just be him. And it's like, I think George says like, oh yeah, there's a good drummer in Manchester we could get. And <laughs> he's not a bad looker either. So there's another little subtext there. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's just. Like, maybe that's what this movie is about. Maybe just, uh... It is, like, I mean, the whole plot is, like, is Ringo going to be sacrificed? Yeah. <laughs> you know, is he going to be... Is he going to take one for the team, as it were? Maybe there's, like, an alternate ending where they do sacrifice Ringo, and then they find a new drummer named Billy Shears. Hmm. Anyway. Uh, I like how... Victor Spinetti appears in both of these films as different characters, obviously. Was he... Um... He's the director in A Hard Day's Night. Oh, right, yep. And then he's the, like, mad scientist in Hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, he still has that same sort of, like, attitude in mm-hmm. both characters, but... I don't know. It, it's nice to see him, like, pop up. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it helps sort of keep a continuity between both movies mm. and make them feel like they're coming from the same place. And, like, his assistant... Is played by Roy Kinnear, who, growing up, I knew as Veruca Salt's father from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That's where he's from, because yeah. the whole time I'm watching it, I, I kept trying to remind myself that I needed to go on IMDb and look up who, why I recognized him, but I forgot. And I think Willy this, Wonka, that's where I know him. I think this was the first film he did with Dick Lester, and I think he's in like most of the ones after that. He actually died making a... Uh, a sequel to the four musketeers in like in the eighties, I think it was called like the return of the musketeers or something. He either fell off a horse or got kicked by a horse. And then like complications from that led to his death. And he was actually like friends with Dick Lester and stuff. So that's crazy. Yeah. Um, and then the head of the cult is Leo McKern who he's been in a ton of stuff, but I mostly know him from, um, the first film that Gene Wilder directed, The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. He played Professor Moriarty. Oh. And Roy Kinnear was his assistant in that film. <laughs> um, I feel like there's something big that he did, though, that I can't really think of right now. Should we look it up? Was it Help? That's it, yes. <laughs> yes, that Beatles movie. I'd say that's pretty big. But yeah, and, like, I don't... I don't really know many of the other actors that pop up but I feel like there's this thing with like British actors where you get the impression that they've all like studied and they're all from the stage and then they show up in movies and do like two lines and like that's how the, most of the world knows them but like they're they're so polished and everything that they can just like every like as if like all the actors in England all like know each other right and it's weird but like I, I really don't know most of the actors no i didn't i didn't recognize pretty much anybody and like in hardy's night i think uh paul's grandfather wilford bramble um i think he was mostly known for the tv show steptoe and son which was remade in america as sanford and son Hmm. but i mean i've never seen it i don't know a lot of british sitcoms from the 60s (laughs) I mean, you can't blame you. It's one of my biggest failings. <laughs> oh, okay, Leo McKern was in the Blue Lagoon. 
he was... Did you ever see that? No. Oh. Well, he was the old British guy in that movie. Uh, Man for All Seasons. And, of course, he's done a lot of Shakespeare on TV. As a lot of accomplished uh, British actors have. Oh, and he's... That's right. He played number two in a couple episodes of The Prisoner. Oh. Which which I need to get around to watching sometime. I need to watch the rest of it. I do like how the scope of help is bigger than Hard Day's Night. They kind of go on like a mini world tour. Um, And it being in color really... uh, It's interesting. Uh, Kayla saw some of it and... She watched Hard Day's Night with me last night, and she only she just saw like a scene from Help today. And uh, when she saw it, she was like, "Wow, it looks so weird seeing them in color," which is kind of strange. And, and like seeing them in such high quality, like I watched it on DVD, and I guess like I'm used to seeing them from that time, either in black and white, or if it is in color, it's very like low. TV quality because it was you know like an interview or like something shot for TV. Yeah. This is kind of like their one time like in that era, right in the middle of of their the height of their well, not you can't say the height of their career, but like right smack dab in the middle of it, where they were in color in on film. I mean, there was Magical Mystery Tour, which was shot on film i think but But it was shown in black and white when it first premiered on tv yeah and even when you watch it today the the version i've seen it anyway it was it wasn't a very good transfer it was like it felt very like it was vhs yeah i mean it was on vhs it was low quality just it felt like tv kind of thing so yeah i mean i I, it is weird i hadn't realized that like i hadn't seen them look as good as as they did like and it is just surreal kind of I like how different they are, though. I like the fact that Hard Day's Night is so... It's like that stark black and white, claustrophobic interior. And then Help is just... Like, bright colors, popping, widescreen. Yeah, like, and I mean, the first open. one is, is more grounded in reality. Even though there are sort of, like, strange elements to it. Mm. Like them... Like John s- in the bathtub. Like John in the bathtub. <laughs> Or them, like, suddenly appearing outside of the train, like, chasing after them on a bike and stuff. But, I mean, in Help, all bets are off. It's very, you know... And when when did Monty Python come around? 69, I think? 69. So this is, like, this is a good four years before that. And they're doing these kinds of jokes that are very, like, Monty Python-esque. Like, the intermission. Oh, my God, the fucking intermission. That was... (laughs) That was the one, like... I never disliked help, but I would sort of like start to lose interest in it after a few minutes. But the intermission and like part two and, and part two, two and like everything, yeah. like I just like I lost it. It's great. Whole thing. It, it, and I like I think like your sort of com- early complaints about the pacing of it being like, oh, it's kind of boring. Like I kind of agree with that in, in some way there. But once it reaches that point where it's like end of part one intermission and then we just get this like quick shot of them like bouncing up and down yeah. <laughs> and it's like end of intermission part two and then it's just like this quick scene of like the girl who was to be sacrificed getting cleaned off in the tub 
when someone's saying like you're always getting red on you blah, 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 you're or, just like your sister yeah and then it's like end of part two part three later that afternoon or later that day or later that evening or something and it just suddenly just enters in this like quick kind of like mm. poppy thing and it's great and uh knowing that later on george harrison became really good friends with the monty python people and wound up financing some of their work um like life of brian and uh did they do meaning did he do meaning of life too handmade films i'm not sure can't remember but um yeah he became involved with with their stuff and he was he, he was a really big fan it makes me wish that like they had overlapped you know that monty python had because if they sh- if they started in 1969 that's just when the beatles were breaking up it would have been great if they had done just like another movie like help but like directed by like terry jones or something and just done like a real like you can imagine something like uh the meaning of life in in this sort of you know this sort of sketch uh sort of thing that's just so wild and imaginative and fun but still all and all these random ideas but still all very like kind of concise and it feels like something that they were trying to do with uh magical mystery tour almost yeah but magical mystery tour doesn't reach the 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 heights of of meaning of life or anything monty python did um i feel like you know they if they if they had done like magical mystery tour for instance and had like a real director doing it someone someone like from monty python or something that would have been awesome i think it it could have been their best movie but it was not to be i mean even if if the beatles had continued on into the 70s you'd imagine they would have wound up crossing paths with the monty python crew yeah because i mean in fact they did i mean with george harrison so i mean it is it is it's a shame that you know there wasn't more but it's it's hard saying that when like they were a band for such a short amount of time in relativity you know to everything else like it was less than a decade that they were really like together and and known as the beatles when you think of like how long other bands have been together it's but just how prolific they were in those years like they released how many how many core albums like 12 or something like that please please me with the beatles hard days night beatles for sale help revolver sergeant pepper magical mystery tour white album abbey road let it be you missed rubber soul i did miss rubber soul it's because i don't have anymore because the tape broke it snapped (laughs) so it's 12 yeah okay did you get Yellow Submarine too? Yeah. No, I didn't. So thirteen. To, but that's but not. Yeah, a, Yellow Submarine is like it is technically a part of their canon when yeah. you're talking about their albums, but it is very like. It's the Beatles and George Martin. Yeah, it's got a handful of Beatles. Which songs. I mean, they were all the Beatles and George Martin. Two of which but... are on other albums. Yeah, so it's like you only get like it's Yellow Submarine. All you need is love, and I think Strawberry Fields is on it too. Also, really, maybe. I don't know. I haven't. I, that's that's one I'd never listened to. 
Well, I, I have it and I have listened to it. But when I'm like, oh, I feel like listening to some Beatles, I rarely take out the Yellow Submarine <laughs> yeah. album and pop that in. Well, because you only get um, All Together Now, which is... It's okay. You know, it's All Together Now. Hey Bulldog. Um, hey Bulldog, which is, a, the, is the best on yeah. that album for sure. And Only a Northern Song. Only a Northern Song. I think it's just those three. It's it's barely a Beatles album. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so they they made we'll say twelve albums in the span of less than ten years. From like nineteen sixty one to nineteen seventies when Let It Be came out, but that was recorded yeah. earlier and whatever. So we'll say, you know, nine years, I guess. Twelve albums. Three feature films that they produced and starred in themselves. Yellow Submarine wasn't really like their project. Um, we'll get into that next episode. But, you know, I mean, they there was like a cartoon show, Saturday morning cartoon show. I've never show. seen any of that. Um, which, again, they didn't really have anything to do right. with that. But um, just the it's just unbelievable the amount of stuff that they put out and not just that but just the how high the quality was of almost everything it's just unbelievable and like those the 12 albums like in addition to that there's also so many other songs they release like only as singles or yeah MPs and like stuff. some of their like most classic songs like hey jude for instance is not on any of those yeah. albums i mean technically as an american i had the hey jude album but mm. but that's, that's not but we're not even counting that one album. of the 12 right. albums yeah um like it it's it's nuts i i cannot sort of fathom putting out that much work and not only that but like for the first half of those 9 years or so they were touring playing live shows nonstop And played, like, the biggest shows the world had ever seen. Like, the Shea Stadium shows. Yeah. I, I I really... I I can't wrap my head around, like, what kind of a life... John wrote two books. Yeah, and, 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 like... and during that time, I mean, like, you know, like, George and Paul, like, wrote music for fil- other films. Yeah. Scored music. Um, And by the end, they were... You started doing you know other things like john was producing his own singles and doing stuff with yoko and and they owned a company yeah owned a company um, unfortunately wrote songs for other bands to play or other musicians um it's just it's just nuts and now i mean a band you're lucky to get a new album from them every two or three years <laughs> and it's like that should be fine, especially if, like, they're taking their time to make, like, really good albums. But because of bands like the Beatles, who just, like, had to churn them out, mm-hmm. you, we were, were spoiled. And now we're like, these lazy-ass bands right. we listen to the same damn album for three years now. Come on. But, like, if you were, like, a Beatles fan growing up in the 60s, it's like every couple months there was something. There yeah. was, like, a new single, and then, like, the next month maybe a new album, and then after that a movie, and yeah. then, like, just... Like in 1964, <laughs> you had 
Hard Day's Night and Beatles for Sale as albums. You had the movie Hard Day's Night. I'm not sure what singles were released in 64. I think I Want to Hold Your Hand was the beginning of 64. Um, but it's like, that. that's a pretty good year. Yeah, I mean, I'd say. Plus, I mean, plus they're, they're playing live shows all the time. Yeah. So you could go see them play live. I mean, I... Part, I mean... Partly, you're, they're able to do that because they have the uh, the management and the the record label and all that stuff is just like setting a lot of that stuff up for them to do. And that, and a lot of times, you know, like Hard Day's Night comes about because it's like almost because it's out of their control. You know, it's, there are other people saying we need to make a Beatles movie, and they're like. Uh, okay yeah <laughs> like we can do that and it's like we need an album to do it okay and so they just like write <laughs> these classic yeah. songs just like at the drop of a hat I mean um, it, it's crazy it is it's good to have that kind of just like constant um, motivation I guess I mean they didn't have time to look back they were just barreling forward non-stop were you looking up 1964 yeah i mean in 1964 you had i feel fine that's not on that's no. not on yeah which she's a woman but she's a woman um eight which, days a week which is on beatles for sale oh that's right that was never actually a single in the uk i was reading the other day that like john and paul always thought that was just a stupid song and they never played it live Really? It was just an album track. They never played it. It was an album track. They threw it there and they were like, yeah, I mean, it's cool that we had a little fade in and stuff and the ending, but that's ridiculous. And they were surprised that it was like a U.S. hit because it was released as a single there. Hmm. Of course, they only played live for like less than two years after they put that album out. So. Yeah, I, I can't really read this chart. But anyway. It's weird how um, in Help, there's really not fans yeah that element isn't there at all really. and they're definitely famous because they'll go places and people will be like oh it's well i mean there's the, the running joke of like oh it's the famous beatles the famous ringo the famous right. finger and everything. The, the, the famous this and the famous yeah thing. um but there's no screaming girls or anything and like in hard day's night it's there's no real like female characters like there's that weird bit where john runs into the girl in the hallway. Uh, yeah, yeah, and in the stairway. It was just it's such a weird scene. Yeah. Um but mostly they're almost like props. They're just kind of like there. They're dancing girls that like the Beatles are just like flirting with and it's like cuz I mean they're the Beatles. Like they, they meet a girl, they can have sex with them. Why not? Um or like the girl that the grandfather is with in the casino and stuff like that. They're not really people they're just there well, and then in help i mean that like when you, i mean if you think about just like what being in the beatles must have been like that constant screaming of just hordes of girls it just becomes background noise it just be, that's what it becomes basically is just like it's just scenery yeah, well but not even just those girls in the audience but i mean just like women females yeah, in general yeah. they're just they're if they're there they're just there mm -hmm. they're not actually like living breathing like creatures they're just props and stuff and then like in help they almost like play off that in um 
oh, I don't remember which one's the one they do on the beach. Is it another girl where they're using the girls as instruments? Yeah, basically yeah. they're like playing them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Help, you have like an actual female character who's actually sort of running things. Right. Basically, like you know, looking out for him, making yeah, sure and not like, getting killed. <laughs> yeah, and like misguiding the uh, the cult and stuff. One thing I noticed about Hard Day's Night is they you never hear anybody say Beatles. Not once in the whole movie. And it's cool almost because it almost is like they're not like it, be, it suddenly becomes like this every band or something mm. like they're this alternate version of them and it but it's totally the beatles life experience and it's like their kind of view on on the whole thing but they never say the beatles once then in the uh in help they are talking about the beatles and they're referring they're the uh the the, the cult leader during the at the beginning of the movie bait he calls them like Beatle, like beatles you beatles um but it doesn't but that but help isn't really about like the whole Beatles experience, you know what I mean? It isn't about like the real life Beatles. Well, Hard Day's Night is sort of like a documentary look at what it's like for the Beatles to be on tour. And then Help is actually sort of a documentary look at their day to day existence. That happens to them all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think of them as actors? Like like how how would you rate each of them like I think Ringo comes off the best as an actor, and he did have a career afterwards, like acting in like non-musical films and stuff. Yeah, I mean, there definitely are moments, especially in Help, which I mean, he is like almost the main character in that movie. Yeah. Um, but there, there are definitely moments in that where I, when when he's like facing off against the tiger, um, yeah, he he does like feel like a real actor for sure you would expect john to come off the best as an actor because like at least in interviews and stuff he has that sort of groucho aspect to him where he can just like come up with this witty thing and just Mm -hmm. but i mean i don't think he's a bad actor at all um he just doesn't come off like as strongly as like ringo does um because he's not really given that much to do acting wise especially in help yeah and I feel like in Hard Day's Night, he's got more to do. And that's part of the reason why I felt just kind of like, eh, you know, help, it's it's good. But, like, individually, they're not really given, like, a whole lot of, like, really yeah. great things. I mean, Paul has, like, some stuff. I mean, he gets, you know, he has, like, shrinking scene and, like... The flirting with the girl. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, yeah, John doesn't really have, like, much to do in help. And George comes off well, and it's mostly, not necessarily in his lines, although, I mean, he's good with his lines, but... Um, just his face and his mm-hmm. reactions to things. And yeah, just like for sure. The way his eyes will dart and stuff. And Paul seems like he's he thinks he is a good actor. And, like, he's not a bad actor, but he... I don't know. Something about him, you can tell, like, yeah, he's he's really acting. I don't know. He's very impressed with himself. Yeah, I don't know. For some <laughs> reason, I, I, I kind of get the opposite sense, where sometimes I feel like Paul's a little disinterested or unenthusiastic sometimes um 
and George is kind of that way too, where he's he's very reserved mm. most of the time. Well, that was the persona. He was the quiet one. Right. He was the dark horse. <laughs> um, but there's the scene with uh, in Hard Day's Night where he walks into the like the model agency or whatever. Yeah. With the shirts and the, like that's he's great in that. The Beatles sticking it to the man. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, like, and yes, they were this pop band, and they were extremely popular and everything, but at the same time, they were at the vanguard of everything. And, like, not just musically, but, I mean, like, fashion, Mm -hmm. and, like, I mean, the religions, like, they later they got into, like, the Eastern mysticism, and they, like, spread that to the West. Like, oh, the Beatles are into meditation. We should try that. Yeah, we should be meditating. And, I mean, it makes sense that, like, the films that they would do would be very, like, modern films. Mm-hmm. And, like, very, like, at the forefront of what was going on. Which, as we get into, like, Magical Mystery Tour, is pushing even further. Yeah. Um, and that's quickly another thing I wanted to talk about, actually. I was surprised to see that Eastern influence already starting to come in, in Help. Where, like, there's literally a band that, um, yeah. with sitar, there's a, there's a sitar that shows up in Help. And that's how George first saw it. Really? Is that what happened? On the set of Help, he was like, what's this thing? And he picked it up and he kind of plucked it a little bit. That's the, be- that's the beginning of his interest. Wow. I did not it, know that. On that set, in that, fa- in that restaurant set, they just had a sitar there and yeah. And then changed his life. Yeah, Both that, movies changed his life because in Hard Day's Night, Patty Boyd yeah. is in that movie. Yeah, she's just an extra essentially like in early on in the, in the scenes on the train and, uh, and then later, he you went know, on to marry her and write something. And then Eric Clapton wrote Layla and wonderful tonight. And she inspired a lot of great music. Yeah. It's crazy. But another thing is, um, what's cool is in that scene with the sitar and help is there that, that, that Indian band is playing hard days night but only on the sitar. Yeah. And there are, there's a lot of really great incidental music in Help that's just in the background of these sort of like... I'm happy just to instrument, dance with you. Instrumental covers of some of their songs. Yeah. And uh, they're great. I, I'd really love to see... I think some of the... I think there was a Help soundtrack that was released yeah. that Hard had... Hard Day's Night also had just like a soundtrack soundtrack. Okay, yeah. yeah. That had some of those tracks on it. Like the instrument... Like I know that the Hard Day's Night one had, like, the instrumental This Boy, and, um, Help had at least the, like, the marching band Hard Day's Night towards the end. Mm-hmm. And I like how both the movies have instrumental versions of, um, I'm Happy Just to Dance With You. Because, well, in Hard Day's Night, it then, like, because it's, like, the people, like, uh, the choreographer and, like, the showgirls are dancing to, like, this weird version of it. And then oh, it right, leads yeah. into the Beatles actually playing the song. And then in Help, it's just kind of like... I don't remember at what point in the movie it is, but they you just hear, like... Mm-hmm. I don't know. And it's also interesting that both movies, like, the title song only appears at the beginning and the end. And you don't actually see them playing it uh, in the movie. Hmm. Like, well, Help on the screen. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the they do play it. They do play it at the beginning, yeah. But it... The, you would expect that like those in like because hard day's night pops up in the song pops up in the movie help in instrumental form twice yeah. two different instrumental versions um you'd expect it to be help 
because that's the movie that we're <laughs> watching or whatever. But um, no, I mean, there's help at the beginning and then there's help at the end. And that's it. Which, uh, yeah, it's cool. Mm. And again, that that's a song that was written because the name of the movie was Help. And it's such a personal song, too. Yeah. It's great that they were just like, oh, we need a song called Help. And he didn't just say, like, okay, well, well like, we he know being John. The, yeah, the movie and, like, you know. Yeah, like, not he didn't just write, like, I'm being chased by cult members. They want my friend's finger or something. Like, I yeah, don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, he actually wrote, like, this personal thing about, like, how trapped he felt in his own body mm-hmm. and just how horrible he felt his existence was at the time. Yeah, I mean, and that's why, like, Hard Day, the songs Hard Day's Night and Help totally transcended the movies that they mm-hmm. came from. Like, to the point where, like, it's a surprise to find out that, like, they were written for these movies mm-hmm. that, like, most people probably haven't even seen. But they've heard those songs, you know? And it just goes to show that, like, no matter what you think about, like, their their presence in film or what how they, you know, how well their movies did or how good the movies are they were songwriters first and that's where they really shined and i mean it's just amazing how they could just write hit hit after hit just like on demand at at the request of anybody just like oh oh we need a hit song okay uh i'll come back to you in 12 hours and there it is i do like that hope there is the moment where they're like we have to do it. We have to cut a record tomorrow. Yeah. And then they have to like be in the field and have just like this weird. Yeah. They, they record surreal, the album like, in the middle of this like field and it's surrounded really, by really windy. And they just have like this one, like it, the, like the glass wall sort of of the, uh, like recording studio. Mm-hmm. It's like, and the microphone's kind of like hanging off these cranes and stuff. It's yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a nice surreal touch, but things get, even more surreal next episode when we delve into two more Beatles films from the second half of their career Magical Mystery Tour and Yellow Submarine and as their music got more surreal as did their presence in film it's good I'm excited to watch those movies again yeah I've never seen Yellow Submarine cool so thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talkin' Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we will see you next time. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. When, when I was young, was so much younger than today. I never needed anybody's help in any way. Yeah.